the disciple's life is one of formation. You should think of discipleship and formation or instruction as going together. That the disciple's life, therefore, is not a passive and reserved or disengaged life. We come together to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And we bring to bear on our consciences and hearts the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so in corporate worship, whether we're in the New Testament or whether we're in the Old, whether we're in gospel stories or whether we're in Old Testament prophecies, whether we're in letters of Paul or Peter or whether we're in Proverbs and wisdom sayings, our goal is that our hearts would be exposed to the truth of God. And that in being exposed to the truth of God's Word, we would be further formed by it. And that therefore, the goal of our discipleship, uh, the goal of our discipleship to be formed in the likeness of Christ would be accomplished by the gracious and patient work of the Spirit of God. We gather for these weighty things. We're not here for mere formalities and superficialities. We don't want to just check boxes. We're not trying to go through motions. We're trying to believe and follow the truth about Jesus. Because if those things aren't true, and these things aren't shaping us, and these things aren't what we are heralding and submitting our lives to, then what good is it? We come because the Word of God proclaims what is true, and our hearts need what is true. I need to be here today. I need my heart to be thinking on the truths of these matters as I talk about them, Lord willing, by His unction and Spirit. And as we look at the culture around us and our own backgrounds and ways of thinking about the world, we all have ways of thinking about things that don't perfectly align with the Word of God. That's not always clear to us on day one as disciples. It can be the case, actually, and is the normal Christian experience that as we grow and are formed more by the Word of God, we see and realize more and more the ways of thinking about all manner of life that need to be brought to bear and and, uh, conform to the Scriptures. The Word of God, put it this way, it corrects the stories that we tell ourselves about different things. Because here's the grand and glorious story of the world, the living God and the creation under His sovereign care. And He has spoken truth to us in a world riddled with and mixed with various falsehoods. The well is poisoned around us. And therefore, we need the Word of God to address our hearts and imaginations to, if you will, override the false and poisonous stories in the culture and to speak true to our hearts plainly frankly, clearly. And today, we come to a passage of Scripture where we see introduced to us in verse 5 the two kinds of witnesses Solomon identifies. Part of the stories we tell ourselves and the, the state of our heart will result in speaking and affirming and pursuing different things. And the book of Proverbs tells us if it's not the way of the Lord and righteousness and fear of the Lord, it is the other path, the alternative, and there's only one, is the path of folly and deception and delusion. If someone has given themselves wholeheartedly to it, it shows up in their words. Depending on the path one has committed to, speech, if you will, is a signal, some kind of manifestation 
of where the feet are. And the feet on the path of the faithful witness and the feet on the path of the false witness has different expressions. A faithful witness doesn't lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. The ancient world had a very strong need for reliable testimony. And it's not so incredibly different nowadays where you have uh, gamuts in our society, especially judicial and legal settings, that are very much dependent on what one witnessed, what you could bring testimony to. Therefore, testimony in the present and ancient world is a needful thing, and it's crucial to the culture because we see, as one writer put it, that truthfulness, truthfulness is a building block of human communication. It's not like something added on like a cherry on top. It's a building block, a basic building block, and of human society as a whole. If people will not honor their vows or contracts, if they're sworn into an oath but won't answer their questions truthfully or give faithful testimony, then would you end up cultivating individually and collectively is a society of wickedness distrust and suspicion and unfaithfulness where truth is ignored for the sake of some other perceived more important thing. Our culture needs truth tellers, reliable witnesses, people who are committed to the truth in such a way that their commitment to it is expressed as such. There are two kinds of witnesses here. Let's think about them. They're contrasted so that we see that the one is a desirable thing and the other is one we ought to not desire. A faithful witness doesn't lie. Well, that's put before us so that we would think to ourselves, not just is this an observation about life, but how how might I fit in this category? How can I be a faithful witness? A false witness breathes out lies. And while that's an observation, it's also a state of the sinful conditions of mankind not committed to the truth. Faithful or false witnesses rather breathe out lies. So two kinds of witnesses. And the difference between them is shown in the kind of speech. Why are they called a faithful witness? Well, it wouldn't make any sense if it said a faithful witness breathes out lies. The adjective faithful wouldn't make sense if the speech was corrupt. So the description faithful or the description false fit with these individuals because of their commitment or lack thereof to the truth. The faithful witness is called this because of what comes from their mouth, not lies. And therefore, if a faithful witness isn't lying, well, that's stated negatively. We can put it positively. A faithful witness speaks the truth. Because if they're not lying with their tongues, what are they doing? Well, rather than words of deception or falsehood, their words are truth. And if that wasn't the case, then this would be a witness who lies. But the the faithful witness doesn't lie. That's why they're considered faithful. Their commitment is to the truth. The false witness, well, they're called such because of what comes from their mouth. The second half of the verse, in fact, gives a strong expression, breathes out lies. I mean, you you could say a faithful witness doesn't lie and a false witness does lie. Look at how graphic that latter phrase is. Breathes out lies. I think one scholar is correct who says that this is about the deepest recesses of a person where this originates. 
It's like from deep within where you breathe in and you hold your breath and your breath comes up from your lungs. Here, that is where lies have resided. It's deep in there. Take a deep breath of deception, the false witness thinks, and breathe it out. So these lies are breathed out like breath from deep within. I think this writer is correct who also says, therefore, because this is what's inside, that is what's breathed out. Their commitment isn't to the truth. What's within them? Falsehood. So what are they going to breathe? They can only breathe out what they've got inside. They can only breathe out what they've stored up. Why is this person a false witness? Because they have not stored up truth, justice, and righteousness. They've stored up iniquity, deception, manipulation. They don't love neighbor. They don't love the truth. They love deception. That's what's in them. So when they have the opportunity to speak, what are their words going to reflect? Their words are going to reflect their nature. Their words are going to issue forth in continuity with what's within. And Jesus teaches this about the state as well of the sinner in Matthew 15. That out of the heart come various deeds of wickedness and sin. Where does wicked speech come from then? Deep within. Deep within the recesses of the human person in need of forgiveness and grace, and yet committed to wickedness instead. Well, as we've looked at these two uh, contrasting people, then a faithful witness and a false witness, I just want to draw attention to the fact that the ninth commandment is invoked here. In the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And yet we have a false witness mentioned here in verse 5. So in Exodus 20, when the Word of God teaches among the Ten Commandments that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, here's the very real-to-life observation from the Proverbs writer where Solomon says, yeah, here's not only a false witness, what they're doing comes from deep within them, breathing it out, and Proverbs tells this elsewhere too. Proverbs 6, 19, the Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies. There's a very graphic image again of breathing it out from within. Chapter 12, 17 says a false witness utters deceit. That's what makes them false. A false witness is a societal menace because it's a perversion of justice, destruction of livelihood and lives. For example, if a false witness bears false testimony about someone who actually is guilty, then the guilty person might avoid judicial consequences altogether thanks to a manipulated or false testimony instead of a commitment to the truth. What if a false witness knowingly speaks against an innocent person? An innocent person who has not committed these things accused. Then they will face the unjust reality of judicial and societal consequences for wrongs not committed. Oh, yes, a false witness is a societal menace because on both small and macro levels, the implications of lies are grave and far-reaching. I think of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Here he is, near the end of his earthly ministry, taken from Gethsemane in the middle of the night. And we're told that when his trials began in Mark 14, 56, there were many who bore false witness against him. But their testimony does not agree, Mark 14, 56 says. 
Jesus himself was on the receiving end of false witnesses. Because in ancient days and in modern days, people look at deception and lying and think, I think that could serve me. Lying occurs because you have some agenda other than the truth. That's why people lie. They lie for different reasons. They bear false testimony for different purposes. But at bottom, lying occurs because you have some other agenda than the truth. People lie for attention. They lie because they're scared. They lie because they want to avoid certain consequences that the truth might bring on them. They lie out of convenience or laziness because maybe the truth would be awkward or the truth would be time-consuming. People lie to impress other people. They lie to use other people. They lie to retaliate against other people. So if you say, well, you know, why do people lie? Well, there are different reasons in the mind of the liar that might be at work. But at bottom, the liar lies because of some perceived benefit they see. I see something I'm going to gain, some some good thing. Maybe it's just short term. They've not thought long and hard about this. Because as writer Trevin Wax puts in an article, lies are exhausting. He says lies contradict the very core of God and the universe. God is light and lies are darkness. God is truth and lies are untruth. So to believe and live and promote a lie, it's like running through the world, he says, covering your eyes and ears, saying, I don't want to see the truth. I don't want to see the truth. Trying to convince yourself that reality isn't reality. Those who are living lies and breathe out lies and live with deception in their relationships, they are living against the grain of reality and they will not be able to sustain that. A faithful witness cares about the truth. They know there might be implications to the truth, but they don't want their testimony to be pressured, manipulated, or bought or bribed. They want the truth. They love the truth. They want to speak the truth. Someone who speaks the truth is walking in the light, and lies are spoken to conceal. Lies are associated with the darkness. That's why I think Trevin Wax is correct, that God is light and lies are darkness. So not only is there no falsehood in God, those who want to live in the world God has made, in the way God has made the world, commitment to lies, commitment to falsehood, Living with deception in the lives of others in your relationships is to live out of sync with reality, and you can't sustain that. Deception is not an effective long-term strategy. How can you help love your neighbor, though? On a practical level, how can you improve relationships, friendships, culture, society at large? You can play a part in the larger whole by being somebody committed to the truth. Some people might think, well, you know, I wish we could make the world a better place. And they say general statements because of certain alarming concerns here or there or different places. One small practical way to answer that question at the individual level is to ask yourself, are you walking in the light with your words with other people? Are you contributing words into the world and into your relationships that are light-bearing? 
Or do you yourself seek to conceal and deceive and twist and manipulate because that also contributes things into your relationships and the world? So if you look at a harmful or corrupted state of things and say, oh, if only this or that, while you yourself are living in deceptive ways, well, friend, you are contributing and adding to that, you see. One of the ways we can help make a difference is by speaking and being committed to the truth. You might think, well, that doesn't seem like a, you know, a globally, worldwide you know, a platform idea or, sh- or a world-shaking notion. But it's ripple effects. Ripple effects. Decisions that you make that impact the life of another person. The life of a fellow employee. Someone who lives in your home. A friend down the street. The ripple effects over time of living in falsehood bring negative and disastrous implications. And this is even notwithstanding the, own, the character corruption and calcifying of the heart that living in deception has upon the liar himself. So how can you love your neighbor? Speak the truth, walk in the light. How can you improve the conditions of things around you in the small proximities and circles that the Lord has allotted? Walk in the light with your words. Don't lie. Don't deceive people. And you need to be committed to this when you're young. Children, hear me, children. Don't lie to your parents. Don't form a habit, a pattern of not speaking the truth and trying to avoid consequences or this implication or that. Form a pattern of living honestly with others. So that the idea of deceiving and manipulating your neighbor would become unthinkable to you. The idea that you would use another person with your words to lie and distort and contort the truth because of some other agenda, that it would seem unthinkable to you because the truth is so important to your heart. Others in this room, when you think about your workplace, employers, fellow employees, other relationships in your life, don't deceive others. Even in small ways, speak the truth. Speak the truth and don't distort or use unclear hyperbole or exaggeration to portray something that isn't the case when someone else thinks it might be. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira who tested the Lord in Acts 5, portraying that they really did this much when they had not done and they were disciplined and judged by the Lord himself. People who seek to live in deception do so because they are not being animated by a fear of the Lord. They have some other agenda. And it's not love of neighbor. It's love of self. Some perceived gain that they think they're going to get. A faithful witness doesn't lie. But a false witness breathes out lies. What we need is for people to be committed to wisdom. What we need is for someone to be committed to the truth because what they want is to walk in the light with the way God has made the world. And they want to grow wise. They want to live skillfully. They want to live circumspectfully. They want to live prudently. So verse 6 tells us the pursuit of wisdom for these two categories of people. Here a scoffer, and in verse 6, a man of understanding. 
Verse 6 tells us, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. That might even surprise you with the wording because you'd think, why would a scoffer be seeking wisdom anyway? Well, carefully though, let's look here in verse 6. This is not a seeking of wisdom that's effective. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain because of the fact that they're a scoffer. They're being called a certain name here, a scoffer, so that we can recognize why there's a vanity in their search. A scoffer doesn't seek wisdom and actually become wise. But knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. The two people that are contrasted here are the scoffer and the man of understanding. And a scoffer is someone who has an anti-God posture. They don't love the Lord. They don't want to follow the Lord. They actually think worshiping the Lord and committing themselves in obedience to the Lord is ridiculous. They scoff at it. It's a source of mockery and scorn that they would gladly heap. They despise it. They're not neutral. They scoff at it. Why would a scoffer ever seek wisdom? It's a good question to ask as a reader. Why is that even the first half of this verse? A scoffer seeks wisdom. I think it suggests that the scoffer might not be initially seen as such, but superficially or outwardly might seem to be a person who's committed to what's right, but not ultimately. In other words, as one writer put it, you could guess that this person pursues wisdom in a superficial way to have the appearance of being wise. This is not a scoffer in the sense that he's actually committed to the Lord in his heart. They're called a scoffer because they're not committed to the Lord and actually anti-God in their heart. So whatever looks like a seeking isn't actually that. It's external only. There's no real wisdom that's gained. That's why the phrase in vain is used. It's ineffective. Another writer put it this way. Why would a scoffer seek wisdom or at least seem to seek wisdom? Perhaps to bring social standing. They like the relationships of others who actually are wise and fear the Lord. And they just kind of want to fit in with that. They're not really interested in their heart seeking the Lord and glorifying the Lord. They just want to blend, okay? They just want to blend. And maybe they can blend in church pews. Maybe they can blend in Sunday morning and evening services. They like to just have the appearance of being like everybody else that can fit in who might themselves fear the Lord. But with the scoffer in the heart, nothing changes. The seeking of wisdom is in vain because it's not a seeking of wisdom from a heart that is pursuing the Lord. In other words, the reason the scoffer seeks in vain is because the scoffer's heart or attitude toward God is not open and humble and worshipful. You could put it the way this scholar does. The basic reason that attainment for wisdom is impossible for the scoffer is he lacks the most basic building block the fear of the Lord. He lacks the most basic building block. Why why do we know this? Because in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why does the scoffer seek wisdom in vain? He doesn't fear the Lord, and that's the beginning of wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is most decidedly what the scoffer does not have. So how could the scoffer seek wisdom and that be successful? The scoffer seeks it in vain. The scoffer is anti-God. The scoffer wants the benefits and blessings of this life without following the Creator and worshiping Him from the heart. The scoffer is about self and self ultimately. The fear of the Lord he does not have. So the scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. 
you might consider this as a connection between someone's character and their ability to learn and handle life well. To handle life wisely, thoughtfully, to glorify the Lord and to live with the grain of God's created order. This verse connects character and the ability to internalize and live out wisdom. A scoffer, given the state of this person inwardly, does not seek wisdom successfully. But knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. That's a fascinating contrast, I think. Knowledge is not like knowledge in general. Maybe you know some folks who seem to think that whatever they can put their mind to, just a little bit of time, they can learn it. Maybe they're acquiring some skill or some information, and you might know people who you think learning seems to come easy to them. That's not this kind of general knowledge about different things. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, insight, these are all words of Proverbs that connect to knowing how to live for God. Knowing that kind of knowledge, knowledge that is made known in the word of God and not just general revelation in nature, but wisdom on how to live skillfully for the glory and reverence of the name of God. Knowledge like that is easy for a man of understanding. This, kind, this person is already a certain kind of person as well. A man or a woman of understanding, that's a phrase to just say, uh, we could put it this way, a, a wise person. Knowledge is easy for a wise person. I think this would say, as you are growing in wisdom, therefore, or the, the, the more you seek to pursue and, uh, and defer to the scriptures and give your heart to the Lord, the greater in wisdom you will grow. The more mature and across the long haul, the stronger in understanding and discernment you will become. That's what it means when it says knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Because this is a person, this man of understanding, who lives with the flow of God's grace and order in the world. This person is, it's like aiming a water vessel with the flow of the current. The scoffer is trying to live against the stream of God's created order. They're trying to live out folly and rebellion and causing all sorts of ruin in their own lives and harm in their relationships with others. They are living against the current of God's order and providence. But this man of understanding, knowledge comes easy to him because this is a life that is in sync with the current, if you will, of God's revelation and word. A man of understanding would be a genuine seeker. This scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. Have you, have you ever thought before, I feel like when I share this or share that, it's like this just goes in one ear and out the other. You know, here's this person who's listening to instruction, listening to wisdom. Why is it that it seems to be in vain? Well, one answer from the Bible is they're a scoffer. And it tells us in Proverbs chapter 1 and in verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but it tells us in the rest of the verse, fools despise wisdom and instruction. The kind of person you are inwardly, the posture you have toward the word of God will affect how and what you learn. A scoffer, I mean, 
It's like talking to a brick wall, you know, as my parents used to say when we were younger. It's like, didn't you hear what I said? And we may have, you know, uh, but nonetheless, it's like, what, you know, are you listening to me? I don't really think you are, you know, or is what, what's going on between your ears? Are you, are you a man of understanding? The scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. They're, they're looking, but not actually finding. You know, sometimes it's, it can be illustrated with like, okay, you know, mom or dad, uh, I'm looking for something in the refrigerator and I can't find it. It's like, are you really looking though? Because, you know, the moment you go over there, it's like right on the top shelf in front. Okay. It's literally right there. It's like, I was seeking though. I was looking for this particular thing. I didn't really find it. And you see, if my children are like that, they get it from me, honestly, unfortunately. So, you know, they, it's a, it's a genetic, but nonetheless, you, you realize how, how diligent actually was the searching. How committed to the the finding and steadfast searching were you? The scoffer isn't actually committed to wisdom. They're not a genuine seeker. They're not genuinely curious and open to the Lord. And you can find illustrations of this from Jesus' ministry also. Not only did he have false witnesses who bore false testimony against him. Think of the religious leaders who came up to Jesus with an agenda. And they might have seemed to other people like genuine seekers looking for wisdom and asking questions to learn. But it tells us over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus perceived their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He knew exactly the kind of person who had approached him. Whether this was someone like Bartimaeus calling out for mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, knowing the heart of that person, genuinely wanting to follow and love the Lord. Versus someone who comes up to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, are we supposed to give taxes uh, to uh, Caesar or, you know, like I just I just had this genuine question. No, it's it wasn't an open curiosity. It wasn't a submission to the authority of Jesus. It wasn't an eagerness to learn Christ and from him. It instead was someone coming with an agenda already. They're arrogant, self-exalting not coming to submit to Christ. That's not their goal. They're a scoffer. And you can't always tell it outwardly. Think about Judas. Oh, all the public things that Judas was involved in. I wonder how many questions Judas asked over the years. I wonder how many things he heard and saw. I think this writer's correct, though, who says, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss so that we would know that somebody's public affection for Jesus might not be telling the whole story. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss so that we would know someone's public affection for Jesus might not be telling the whole story. Their words might suggest something. Their actions might seem to fit in, but inwardly they are a scoffer. They don't love the Lord. Their heart is not for Christ. Their desire is not to glorify the Lord. They're committed to something else. And you you see these people may perhaps sitting and learning, interacting and conversing. And time and time unfolds year after year. And you think, is this person growing in any wisdom? Well, see, friends, it it depends the kind of listener they are. The problem isn't with what is being taught. The problem is with what Jesus would say. He who has ears, let him hear. A kind of listening. There is a certain kind of listening that internalizes the word of God and that results in fruitful living. There's a whole other kind of listening that shows the fault is not with the word, but with the kind of soil or ground the word is cast upon. The parable of the soils illustrates things like this in Proverbs 14, 6. It also reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke 8, 18. 
Jesus says, take care then how you hear. Think about that phrase for a moment. Take care then how you hear. This is good advice whenever we come to the corporate worship gathering to hear the word of God preached. Jesus would say to us, take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. You know, I think it's another way of saying knowledge will become easy for a man of understanding. What you have will increase. Wisdom, maturity, growth. But from the one who doesn't have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away, Jesus says. I think that's another way of saying in verse 6, a scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. See, it's not only what's being heard, it's the kind of listener doing the hearing. There's all sorts of things people listen to. Not always the Word of God, not always biblical or sound instructions, sometimes foolish, rebellious counsel. Relationships that are entangled with our souls, that are exerting influence to where the scoffer is what the scoffer is because of the influences, internalized messages and beliefs that are counter to the Word of God and are wrapped up with companionships and friendships of dishonor to God. Verse 7 says, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Now we could take this verse in several wrong ways. One wrong way would be to, to say, you know, you can't talk to an unbeliever or be friends with an unbeliever or evangelize an unbeliever. This is not leaving the presence of the fool in any of those senses. I think this is the same idea, though, of chapter 13, verse 20, that says whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, and the companion of fools will suffer harm. Leaving the presence of the fool, earlier it was about a companion with fools matching direction and pace. I think this is a similar idea in chapter 14, 7. Don't let your closest companion's direction and pace in life be matched with the fool. Leave the presence of the fool in that sense. Now, why would we not want our hearts knitted up with those who don't know Christ? It says, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. So if a man of understanding has knowledge and wisdom coming easy to him, one of the things that will be realized in Proverbs is it's not because that man independently and in and of himself is so wise. That person in the context of these chapters is a companion of the wise as well. Chapter 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. So if the man of understanding finds knowledge and increasing wisdom easier, one of the ways God has helped to facilitate that providentially is companions of the wise. Companions of wise, wise people and not fools. This is actually a command in verse 7. Do you notice the imperative nature of this verse? Leave. Over and over again, that's not how we've been reading Proverbs from chapters 10 forward. There's a lot of observations about life. I think you can deduce commands from those when some kind of observation about how a a faithful witness doesn't lie and a false witness breathes out lies. I think you could conclude, be a faithful witness. Stop being a false witness, okay? So you can imply exhortations and moral imperatives. Here's just one explicitly stated. This is not just a mere observation. It's a command, leave the presence of a fool. Ah, see, maybe you think you're the exception to the Bible's wisdom. See, but for anybody else, you know, if they had their lives and hearts knitted up with fools and don't know God, it might not go well with them. I will be fine. I can manage it. I can control. I know when and how far. I will be just fine. Yeah. You know better than the Bible. 
Verse 7 says, leave the presence of a fool. For there you do not meet words of knowledge. The Bible teaches in Paul's letters, flee immorality, flee sin, flee this and that. If we see here, leave the presence of a fool, leave the presence of a fool for what? Or if you look at Paul's commands in his letters, flee immorality, flee this or that. For what, though? Like what in its place? I think you would see in chapter, thir- in chapter 13, 20, walking with the wise is desirable. So leave the presence of a fool and flee to the wise. For with the fool, you will not find words of knowledge. But what about with those who fear the Lord? What will you find there? Well, I bet we can imply that from Proverbs. We will find wisdom to know and follow God. So we flee immorality and sin and pursue holiness. This is following the call of wisdom from Proverbs 1, in a sense. You see, the fool doesn't see their way like this, though. They don't examine their path as such. The wise, the prudent, are able to evaluate and see with greater clarity where things are in the state and condition of their life. In Proverbs 14.8, we're given the effects of wisdom and folly, and it says the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Now, there's a lot of play on words here. you got to think carefully about this verse. What's being spoken about? The wisdom of the prudent. Well, the prudent are the people who are not living rashly and impulsively, but giving thought to their steps. They're not living in fear, except the fear of the Lord. They're living cautiously with discernment. The prudent discerns their way because they have wisdom. So the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way. That's another way of saying, what what does the prudent person think about their life? They're able to look at their lives and they're able to reflect on their decisions. They're able to reflect on cause and consequence. They're able to discern or examine their way. Now, the word way is just a metaphor in Proverbs for your life. So they're able to look at their life. And maybe you've known folks who you would think with the decisions that they've made and the consequences they have faced, you think, why is it that they cannot discern their way? Why is it that they are looking at their life and they do not see what we see? It tells us here, the folly of fools is deceiving Sin, in one of its consequences in our lives, has a deluding, deceiving effect. We ought not be surprised that the fool can't discern their way. The Bible tells us they can't. The fool needs the admonishment and correction of the wise because the folly of the fools has a deceiving effect. Proverbs 12.15 puts it this way. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So the fool looks at their, their decisions and they think, I, I think this is fine. You know, life's on fire, all the decisions and ruin that they're bringing upon themselves. And they think, you know, in fact, not only do things fine, I think I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. The folly of fools is deceiving. Their way seems right to them. It tells us in chapter 14, verse 12, later on in this very chapter, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And so here's this person who thinks they know. How many of you, haven't you ever been turned around walking somewhere? Somebody said, oh, it's over there, two doors down, take a left, it's by this. And you're going around and the way seemed right to you, but you didn't get objectively where you were going at all. 
And you look back and you're backtracing your steps and you're thinking, okay, here's where I made the wrong turn. Or maybe the person giving directions was wrong as well. But either way, the way seemed right, but it wasn't at all. This kind of counsel is inviting you to reflect on your life. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his or her way. And it would be good for us to spend some time in prayerful reflection with the Word of God on our lives here at the end of July in 2022 and thinking to ourselves, what are the state of my feet right now on my path? What is the condition of my life right now? What sort of decisions am I making and what relationships am I cultivating? Is there anything unwise going on? You see, the prudent will want to think that way. They want to discern their way. They don't want to plunge headlong into folly. They've tried to leave that behind. So when they see or when others are helping them to see that their way is marked by some sort of misstep, they think, all right, then I I don't want to keep going in that direction. But the folly of fools is deceiving. It doesn't guide them, it misleads them. It doesn't clarify things, it obscures. They don't know what they think they know because sin by its very nature has a deceiving effect on the mind of the fool. So what we need is wisdom. What we need is being companions with those who are wise, which especially means we need connecting to a loving church who loves the word of God. Praise the Lord for Cosmos Del Baptist Church. And we need to discern our way so that the Lord would guard us and guide us away from sin and into righteousness and truth. And that our steps and our words would be expressed accordingly. Because we do things that are wrong. In our relationships, we commit wrong. In our personal lives, we have sin. Abiding temptations. And verse 9 gives you two different responses that we end our passage with today. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. A guilt offering, that's a very technical phrase in the Old Testament. It's to transport you to the book of Leviticus, which I know you love being transported to. It's like, let's go to Leviticus. And um, in the book of Leviticus, in all seriousness, has in its opening chapters a kind of offering when breaches have been made toward the Lord or toward relationships with others, and you have committed transgression in your life. And you bring something to the priest that's called a guilt offering. In other words, the only reason people would bring a guilt offering in the Old Testament is if they cared about their relationships and they realized something had gone wrong. Well, what's the fool's posture here? The fool mocks a guilt offering. That's a shorthand way of saying the fool thinks the idea of owning up to one's wrongs and trying to amend or bring restitution in relationships, the idea that that would be the path forward, the fool thinks that's ridiculous. The fool mocks a guilt offering. Oh, you see, you don't you realize this, this transgression that's taken place and the harm that this is brought and the breach in this area. That, and the fool's like, I don't care. I don't care because that's not important to the fool. The notion that the fool has done anything wrong might be the very thing you couldn't convince them of anyway. So it's always someone else's fault. The fool might live in what's called a defensive posture all the time, refusing culpability and responsibility for anything. They mock the idea of the guilt offering because it would imply that they're guilty of something. And so for for them, they just do not operate in relationships that way. This guilt offering was very key in the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
to symbolize a care of our relationship to God and others. In other words, you wanted to dwell in favor with God and man. And it tells us in the Old Testament in the Gospel of Luke, and in chapter 252, that Jesus was this kind of obedient son. That he dwelled and grew in favor with God and man. He was the upright, the upright one, righteous and and full of light in his heart, the very light of the world. Fools mocked him and despised him. Scoffers opposed him and conspired against him. But those who could see men and women of understanding in their midst, they followed him. They gravitated to him. His authoritative words, his teachings, they realize there is life in his words. They realize he's the life. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but what about the upright? What about those who want to know the Lord? They enjoy acceptance. And that's a way of talking about relating to God and relating to others in life. It matters to them. They want to relate to others well. They want to live healthy lives with other people. And when they commit a wrong, they want to own what they've done. They want to admit responsibility and they want to make things right. They want to repent of sin. They don't want to mock that notion. They realize they've been given relationships to steward and to invest in. So the upright, they enjoy this. Oh, that's an interesting verb, isn't it? They enjoy acceptance. They delight in it. It matters to them. Let's let's put it this way. Couldn't we say that one principle operating in our lives is that we prioritize things we enjoy? Things that matter to us have some sort of delight factor in it. I mean, in other words, if you had no delight in it and you didn't have any joy in it, there are probably plenty of things in your life that you wouldn't schedule or prioritize. But there, there is some kind of gain that you see. The upright... They look at their relationship with God and their relationship with others, and it is a source of joy for them. So when it comes to recognizing something they have done that's brought guilt, some kind of breach in relationship that needs remedy, mending, or restitution, they're committed to it because they enjoy what God has given them to indwell in and manage and steward. When I zoom out of these verses, friends, I'm thinking about how the Lord Jesus so perfectly corresponds to these things. Not only was Jesus the one who was upright and growing in favor with God and man, Jesus became our guilt offering. This guilt offering that was uh, to signal uh, the alienation between God and sinners or sinners with other sinners, this guilt offering was something quite significant in the sacrificial system. What has Jesus come to do in his mission? To die on the cross to fulfill the system of offerings that could have never taken away sin so that in his atoning work on the cross, he can finish atonement as our perfect guilt offering. But the cross is something fools mock still. I mean, think about how chapter 14.9 here, fools mock at the guilt offering. Just replace guilt offering with the wooden cross. And then all of a sudden we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And not only would fools mock the idea of a guilt offering in the Old Testament, one of the ways modern mockery and scorn is heaped with words and actions in our day is mockery at the very cross of Jesus Christ who fulfills all of those atoning shadows. Jesus himself calls 
people to recognize his ransom as the son of man is for the guilty, for the sinner. That people would be justified by grace and through faith, looking and trusting him and not in their own works and not certainly something they're delivered from by their own scoffing or commitment to folly. That would lead them to only ruin and destruction. It remains the case though, doesn't it? To those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. But to those being saved, it is the power of God. They've got a different view of Christ, our guilt offering. They've got a different perspective of the cross. What has changed it? The heart is different. So it's not some superficial, outward, vaguely curious interest in religious things. We are interested in confessing, believing, hoping, and following Jesus. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about how wonderful that is with Proverbs. Proverbs is so concerned about the way of the sinner. Proverbs is so concerned about abandoning falsehood and being committed to the truth. And Proverbs warns us against the ruin and destruction and death in the way of the sinner and directs us to the path of life. And here's Jesus who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Corresponding wonderfully with the book of Proverbs, in the ministry of Jesus, the way has become flesh. And the truth has become flesh. And life has become flesh. And he dwelt among us. And he's called us to himself. And friend, he calls you today. He calls you to abandon folly and ruin. He calls you to leave behind falsehood and sin. And he calls you to follow him into everlasting life. Won't you follow him into life? He is life. Let's pray.